In the second century, a man named Aristides wrote to the Roman emperor these words. But the Christians show kindness to those near them. And whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They do good to their enemies. If one of them have servants, through love toward them, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a brother. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of the Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if there is any among them that is poor and needy and they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life, and verily this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. The second century church blessed a broken world. And our 21st century world is dying for a blessing. But at times it seems to me the 21st century church has started to think that it exists instead to condemn the world, to remind the world of its sin, to call out its brokenness, to point at its ugliness. But we at Orchard Hill Church want to interact with a broken world and have them say of us, this is a new people and there is something divine in the midst of them. So we're in this final week of our series called A Unique Future, which has been all about this unique mission that God has called us to. And that is, you probably can say it by heart, now helping next generations encounter and follow Jesus to bless a broken world. And if you were here last week, you heard Dave talk about what it means to follow Jesus. And this morning, we're going to explore this idea of what it means for a church and for the people of a church to bless a broken world. Just a little bit of history from the very beginning when God called to himself a people. He wanted them to be a conduit of his blessing to the world around them. When God called Abram to leave his country and go to a land he did not know, this is what it says in Genesis 12, starting with verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So we now are the children of Abraham through faith. We are now the body of Christ on earth, and we exist so that God can bless the world through us. And some of you are saying, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to bless the world? And I agree with you that the word bless or blessed or blessing is incredibly overused, especially in Christian circles. The New York Times defined the word blessing as this. They said it's the new go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment. I have this on a slide. While pretending to be humble. 
Fish for a compliment, acknowledge a success, or purposely elicit envy. I'm so blessed with my brand new large, large home. You've heard it. And we just decided, rather than pitch a biblical word because people have twisted it to mean, look how cool I am, we are hoping to reclaim the word and to see it afresh with new eyes and discover how God wants us to, like Abraham, bless a broken world. And so for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at a passage in the Old Testament book of Numbers where there's this most beautiful and clear description about how God blesses people. And it's actually the blessing that God told Moses to pass along to Aaron to be used to bless God's people in the next generations. Many of you have heard it as a benediction at the end of Christian worship services. This is what it says. The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. When I look at that very familiar passage, I see three things that should inform the way that we know that we are blessed by God and therefore should inform the way we bless the world that we are sent out into. First of all, in that text, we see that God turns his face toward those he blesses. His face shines on them. We see that God offers his grace. May the Lord be gracious to you. And we see that God offers his peace, his shalom. May the Lord give you his peace. And I believe that we are to follow this same model in our interaction with a broken world. And so to help us understand more clearly, let's walk through those three things. First of all, to bless a broken world, we need to turn our face toward it. In the very opening scene in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, after God created the whole creation, and then man and woman, in Scripture we read, Genesis 1.31, God saw, he looked at it, all that he had made, and it was very good. All of creation, all of humanity declared very good by its creator. And yes, sin has marred his image in all of us and in the world, but it can never completely destroy the image of God in each one of us and in every single human being on this planet. God saw his creation and it was very good. And so part of blessing in the way that God blesses, is by seeing people. It's by turning our faces toward them. Think for just a minute about how often Jesus saw people. Read the Gospels. He especially saw the overlooked in this world. He saw sick people. He saw sinners in need of grace. He saw people with broken hearts. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9, we read, When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. In the story of Zacchaeus, we read that Jesus saw Zacchaeus up in the tree and called him to come home. In Luke chapter 7, there's this story of a woman of questionable reputation who bravely crashes a highly religious dinner party to pour perfume on Jesus' feet and to wipe his feet with her hair. And after the Pharisees judge her, Jesus asks this piercing question to the host of the party. Simon, do you see this woman? 
We are to see people, to look at them like Jesus did. And not just to see them, but to speak goodness to them. The English word for blessing takes its Latin root in a word that means to speak well of someone. So to bless someone is to see them and to look for the image of God in them and then to tell them what we see. And for so many of us, this might seem really simple, especially those of us who have people in our lives who see us, who look for God's good in us and who love us enough to call those things out, to name those things, to delight in those things. But so many people made in God's image in this world have no one who has ever looked at them and seen the image of God and called it out. A spiritual uh, thinker named Ronald Rollheiser said about our country, he said, so much of our hunger in this world is a hunger for a blessing. So much of our sadness comes from the fact that nobody has ever taken delight and pleasure in us in a non-exploitative way. What if the church became known as a group of people who really see others? Not who see people to look for what is wrong, to point out what is broken and what is sinful, but people who see other human beings with the eyes of Jesus, who see in order to look for good, to look for what is beautiful, to look for what is redemptive, to look for the fingerprint of God on the human heart, and who are willing to say to people, I see God's image in you, and it is very good. There's a group of young people who are doing Just this in our community. Youth Art Team is something I've talked about before. It's a joint project between Orchard Hill Church and Harvest Vineyard, which is right across from East High in Waterloo, my alma mater. Thank you very much. And I think it has been in existence for like six years now. And it is a way of helping young people see a community and bless it. And I want you to think for a minute about the power of gathering kids from a divided community. Waterloo Cedar Falls is sometimes a little bit of a divided community. And having them turn their faces toward a part of our community that many look away from, which is the Walnut neighborhood in East Waterloo, and then teaching those kids to really see that community and the people in it, to see as Jesus saw And to look for what is good and beautiful and then to name that good through art as a way of blessing the community. I brought some photos that I just want to flash up on the screen because they're currently in the middle of an urban art gallery project where they're studying the history of downtown Waterloo through interviewing Waterloo residents. And from those interviews, they're going to take their learning and create original artwork that speaks to the history of downtown. And then they're going to display that original art in an empty storefront with a message of hope and blessing and goodness and beauty to a community that is too often cursed rather than blessed. And these young people, black and white, rich and poor, Waterloo and Cedar Falls, Orchard Hill and Harvest, are developing a kingdom of God way of seeing. And they are blessing our community because of it. We could learn a lot from them. So God blesses us by turning his face toward us, by shining his face on us, by seeing us. And then number six says, he is gracious to us. 
He extends his grace to a broken world filled with broken human beings like you and like me, and we are called to do the same. This is the second part of how we bless. We extend God's grace to a broken world. And again, as I read this and thought about this, I wondered to myself, at what point in our journey did the American church forget that this was our call? I read a tweet the other day from Michael Gerson. He was George W. Bush's uh, speechwriter. He now writes for the Washington Post. And he said this, he said, How did the word evangelical become the antithesis of grace? Just recently, I let a friend down. I didn't mean to let her down, but I did. And you know what? She didn't give me much grace. She just let me know that I failed her. And I was just sick about myself and about my failure and about my consistent inability to be who I want to be, especially for other people. Can anybody relate to that feeling? And during that same time, this was just last weekend, I had a dream where I was driving my car on super icy roads and I was simply out of control. And so I did what you do in dream world, which is I drove up into people's yards where I knew I would just slam into stuff and that would slow me down. And so I took out some mailboxes and yard signs and I finally stopped in my car, but I was for some reason in a parking lot. You know how this goes. And my car was still sliding around. And I was just hitting every other car in the parking lot. I was just banging into them. And then eventually, again, you know how dreams work, I found myself bouncing back and forth between two beautiful, big, shiny Iowa pickup trucks. And I was just dinging the heck out of them. And eventually their owners, two men, came over by my car. And because my windows were up, and I couldn't hear them very well, they just started yelling at me about what an idiot I was for hitting their trucks. Don't mess with an Iowa man in his truck. And I kept trying to call Chuck on my phone to have him come help me, but my numbers had blown off my phone somehow. You know this dream. So I kept trying to call him by just putting my finger on like where I thought the right number was. And these men kept yelling at me and telling me what an idiot I was and how I needed to stop hitting their car. And I kept screaming at them. I'm so sorry, I said. I'm trying as hard as I can. This is a picture, this dream, of a human soul trying to process ungrace and as I thought about it and I told Chuck about it the next morning I thought this is too often how broken people outside the church see the broken people inside the church they know their lives are skidding out of control they know they are hitting people and dinging up people's hearts and souls and ruining lives but no matter how hard they try they can't fix themselves and the church sometimes just stands outside their broken lives and yells at them but grace have you ever been offered grace when you least deserve it my dad is a grace specialist especially when it comes to cars which fits beautifully with my dream 
I think he waits for his kids to get in car accidents so he can speak grace to them. But a few years ago, we were going to go overseas to visit my daughter. And after dropping our dog off at my parents' house, I buckled into my van, told my son Will next to me. I looked at him and I said, we're going to Africa. And then I proceeded to slam my van quite briskly into a work truck that was parked right behind me in my parents' driveway. I just crunched the heck out of it. And in typical fashion, my dad runs out of the house with a big grin on his face. He grabs my entire bumper off the ground. And while trying to shove it in the back of my van, he says to me, Alice, it's not that big of a deal. You barely grazed it. Don't, <laughs> don't worry about it. And then he offered to let me drive his car to Chicago. I smashed my own minivan through sheer negligence and my dad smiles and hands me the keys to his really, really nice car. And my soul, you see, rather than being crushed with guilt and self-loathing and self-hatred, my soul came to life. This is the power of grace when we deserve condemnation. Grace is the answer to our deepest need. Grace is the only hope for the human spirit. Grace is the one thing the church really has to offer the grace of Jesus to a desperate, dying, despairing world because it is what saved us desperate, dying, despairing people. It is all we have to offer. It is our one trump card. And by God's grace, Orchard has played that card for years and it will continue to play that card as long as we have breath. This is the call of our church. We are blessed to bless, and the most profound way we bless is by extending the radical, unearned, unquenchable, unstoppable grace of God through Christ to people just like us who don't deserve a shred of it. So we see people, and we look for good. We look for God in them, and we extend the grace of Jesus And then we work toward God's peace for a broken world, what the Hebrews called shalom. And this writing about shalom is from one of our leadership class manuals that I teach. This is what the writers say about shalom. They say the Hebrew word shalom is most often translated as peace in English. We, so, so when it says, may God give you his peace, they're using the word shalom there, but they say the simple word peace fails to communicate the depth of what shalom meant to the Hebrew culture. In the most comprehensive way we can imagine, shalom conveys life as it ought to be. Shalom is a vision of what it is that God wants for human creatures, a vision of what constitutes human flourishing, which is just that sense of extreme well-being and growth. And then this is what else the writers say. They say God even tells the Jewish exiles in Babylon when the Jewish people got exiled and were taken over by the Babylonian government, they, they encouraged them to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. In Jeremiah 29, that is to seek the Babylonians' well-being, to seek the flourishing of your captors and your enemies. This is such a stunning picture, you guys. And, 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 And so just like the captive, exiled Israelites, it doesn't matter where we live. 
We are called now as God's children to bless our communities, to bless our neighbors, even especially to bless those we see as our enemies. And one of the most powerful ways that we do that is we partner with God and neighbor to work toward shalom, to work for God's peace, to work to make the world the way it was meant to be, and to work for the flourishing of all people, not just our own little circle. So by way of an example, I want to ask a question. I'm confident you've never been asked in church, nor will you ever be asked in church again. And that is, how many of you have ever been in the feminine hygiene aisle at High V? Please do not raise your hand. Get over the shock for a minute. I want to report from having to go there myself that the abundance of choices and options and supplies that we have as American girls and women is mind-numbing, almost to the point of ridiculous. But what if there were no aisle? At High V. What if there were no supplies for girls and women in this country? What if we just had to make do? Well, millions, if not billions, of young women around the globe have to do just this. And so they use scraps of fabric or whatever they can find. And some Orchard Hill women learned that our partners in Haiti at the UCI ministry We're experiencing this lack of resources with the young women who were part of their programs. And they learned that for women from Haiti who had no feminine hygiene supplies, it meant for them days and days every year without school, days and days often without income, days without ever having to get, getting to leave the house. And so these Orchard Friends connected with a program called Days for Girls, which helps girls around the world attend school or work regularly by simply providing them with washable feminine hygiene kits. I brought one with me, but I thought with all that was going on up here, I'd probably drop it and then I'd be embarrassed and whatever. They're super cute. And within a year of receiving these kits, think about this, the number of girls dropping out of school decreased from 25% to 3%. And here's the thing. When we can keep girls in school and when we can help women stay at work, the poverty cycle can be broken. And so a group from Orchard Hill created 75 kits. I have some pictures to send with the college uh, spring break mission trip that recently went to Haiti. My friend Kara Vanderwill oversaw this project. It involved 20 women ranging from high school age to 91 years old. And I heard rumor that there were a few dads even involved. And they created these kits, and they were beautiful. And they contained everything a girl needs to manage her life and stay in school or work. So they assembled these kits painstakingly. They prayed over them. They prayed for the community receiving them. That They prayed for the team of college students delivering them. And most importantly, they prayed for the girls in Haiti who received them. And each girl who got one also got one for her mother. Now, I know... You know, who wants to hear about this on a Sunday morning? But let me just ask you this. What do you think is more offensive to the heart of God? Us talking about this for a few minutes? Or us taking the high V aisle for granted while billions of women and children and families fall further into poverty and despair for lack of something so simple and ridiculously abundant here? 
This is a picture of blessing a broken world by partnering with God and neighbor to work for peace, to work for shalom, to help people flourish, to help make things right. We are blessed to bless. And we have been this kind of church for decades. We just want to name it more clearly now because we want to become this kind of church. We want to become this kind of people more and more and more. People who see others, especially the overlooked, and who see them as God sees them, who see the image of God in them, and who delight in that image and who call it out. We want to be the kind of people and the kind of church who see others and then extend the grace of God through Christ. We want to see others extend grace and then we want to work toward God's peace in a deep way, not just in a surface way. We want to do all we can to partner with God and neighbor to make things right in a world that is very broken. And we can, each one of us, I want you to hear me say this, each one of us can start living this way right now as individuals. We can be people who bless a broken world in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. We can even do this at a local bar, and some of us probably should. But we also then want to join together as the body of Christ here in the Cedar Valley and Grundy County and Waverly and Haiti and Mozambique and Walnut Neighborhood and all the other communities we're involved in. We want to join arms, link arms as a people of God, and we want to become the kind of people who not only help people encounter and follow Jesus, but who do that in order to bless a broken world. And so I encourage you to look at the two questions I left in the the bottom part of your bulletin this morning. Will you continue to join Orchard? as we do this most fulfilling and important work of God, and how might God be calling you right now to start to live this kind of way in your ordinary days? I'm going to pray and we're going to continue to worship the God who blesses us so we can bless a broken world. Let's pray. God, we so often forget that the extension of your blessing doesn't just stop with us, but that it was always meant to be a flow-through, that we receive joyfully and gratefully your blessings, your undeserved blessings to us. And then, God, in our gratitude and in our joy, we simply turn toward a broken world and give a broken world the exact gifts that you've given us. And in that, God... In that, in losing our lives and putting our lives in your hands and turning over our lives to you both as individuals and and as a church, we find fulfillment and purpose and joy and happiness in your kingdom. And so help us, God, to continue to become this kind of a church who help next generations encounter and follow Jesus to bless a broken world. Amen.